the Russians are losing it, or at least not winning it, okay, which has opened a window for the United States. First, Ukrainians have demonstrated that they are able to be an effective fighting force. Second, the Russians have demonstrated that making war is difficult. The thing that's missing from the mix is advanced and very powerful weapons. And the United States this weekend basically announced a massive shipment of such weapons from anti-air systems to howitzers to everything else into Ukraine. And that will take a while to get there. But the United States is now looking at this as, look, the Ukrainians held. We didn't think they would. The Russians have not succeeded. If we give them the weapons, they can, if not be defeated, which we're not sure we want to do, but certainly push back into a negotiation that we, we value. The weapons are coming. They aren't there. Therefore, there's a window of opportunity. But remember, they're fighting for the Donbass. The Donbass was always a pro-Russian region where the Russians had special forces there. They're struggling to subdue a very weak force and not doing it extremely well. There's all sorts of intentions they have. Now they claim this is all they ever wanted, but they had a massive armored force to the north driving on Kiev that didn't make it. So the Russians, what the Russians are announcing, pay little attention to, as in wartime you should, they keep changing their intentions. They keep acting as if having done poorly in this region, now, now they'll extend the war. This is simply war propaganda. There's only one question. Can the Russians mount a major offensive before the American weapons arrive? It's clearly a gesture that they want some sort of accommodation with each other. Nobody's trying to crush the other perfectly. But something important also happened today, yesterday. A senior State Department team was in Azerbaijan, and so was a deputy prime minister from Russia, both of whom happened to show up in Baku, the capital, on an unclear mission. Now, to at the same time to have senior figures of this sort gathering together in the same city gives an opportunity for a relatively invisible conversation. So I think at this point, the United States having made clear, one, it doesn't think Russia will win, two, it's prepared to send major weapons, both sides are in a position that they want to talk. Defeating Russia and Ukraine doesn't defeat Russia, and Russia's a dangerous player. U.S. doesn't want to be too aggressive. The Russians want to have some sort of retreat with honor. Fine. They still lose. But the point that I'm making is talks are going on, and that exchange, well, it plays two ways. One, it shows that NATO is vibrant. Second, it exposes a very large area that NATO has no defensive force to protect. Joining NATO means that NATO is committed to your defense. And it also gives an area for the Russians to play with. But I would say that on the whole, the message is that in no way, and this is part of the thing, really shocked the Russians. First, that the Ukrainians can fight. Second, that the Europeans are not breaking apart into different things. And third, the United States isn't afraid of them. Going back to the Cold War, the Russians waged armored warfare. And they began this war with armor in the north, the south, the east, three groups converging. What is odd about the Russians is that they didn't realize 
that they were converging on thin air. In other words, that the strategy the Ukrainians had was essentially a guerrilla warfare strategy of infantry moving around, hitting them, evading them, and so on. They weren't ready for that. They thought this was going to be a war against NATO, and the Americans would fight in a certain way, and they didn't adjust their strategy to the fact that this was not NATO fighting, but a group of patriots hacking it out in the, in the, in the woods. Well, he'd love to show a great success. Now, the problem with that is you've got to show one. And so far, his trust in his military has declined massively because they've not been able to bring anything to a close. They're still fighting in the Donbass. They're still fighting in the South. At no point have they closed off the battle. So I don't think he's hoping for a great success. I think he's afraid he's going to be a great defeat somewhere. Well, if we don't get that image, then some sort of political struggle is taking place inside the Kremlin. We don't know how those struggles take place anymore. There used to be a Politburo, a central committee, and that's where it was slugged out. Now it's much more informal. But you can't believe that there is not serious questioning in the highest levels of the Russian government about his capabilities. In a liberal democracy, foreign policy cannot belong to the technocracy. It cannot belong to those who make their living doing this. It has to belong to the citizenry. But foreign policy is difficult. Foreign policy may not be exciting. And the citizens don't want to do that work. And it's understandable. But to maintain a democracy, to have wars only when they're in the interest of the people, and to avoid wars when they're not, I mean, this requires more than politicians, more than PhDs, and you know, more than experts. Because you are experts in your lives, and this affects it. So that's how I approach this. Uh, I approach it pretentiously as a public service and practically as a way to live without having to live in Washington doing what I do. <laughs> when I left Washington, I got to the border and I turned around and I spat and I kept going. I don't like Washington. <laughs> so I want to speak to you about a war that we're sort of involved in and who knows where it goes. And I want to speak to you in a way that I wrote a paper about intelligence and love. And by that I don't mean, you know, some movie. I mean the fact that you cannot conduct intelligence if you don't love your subject. And by love your subject, understand him so completely that you could be him or even want to be him. And then you can kill him. And I say that not to be shocking. But America loses wars when it feels good about itself. It loses wars when it feels contempt for its enemy. It loses wars when it doesn't penetrate so deep that he loves who he is. So I want to talk to you about Russia and Iraq. And I'm sorry, wrong war. <laughs> I've been doing that lately. Ukraine. <laughs> No, my daughter was in Iraq as an intelligence officer. And ever since then, I'm fixated in Iraq. I can't stop. So where does the story of this war begin? In the airport at Pristina, 
in Kosovo. The United States and NATO went to war for the first time against Serbia. They had never been collectively in a war. And that war was designed to stop genocide. There had been genuine genocide of Bosnians by the Serbs. Now they were afraid that it would happen again in Kosovo. And the solution they found, having not thought about it much, is to bomb Belgrade, including bridges and, for some reason, the second story of the Chinese embassy. But some, something was up. <laughs> they waged this war, and as all American wars, they wanted to stop it. But as with all American wars, the wars don't stop simply because you want it to end. And so they reached out to the Russians. The Russians had an excellent relationship with the Serbs and police, particularly with Milosevic. And they went to the leaders and raised the question, OK, how can you help us? And Boris Yeltsin appointed a man, Chernomirdin, who had been premier, prime minister, and who negotiated a settlement with Milosevic. Now, there was rumors of the settlement included large sums of money, but I'm sure that wasn't true. <laughs> but at any rate, the Russians wanted one thing. Chernomirdin said one thing. If this is going to happen, then the peacekeepers have to include Russians. There has to be a Russian component to the peacekeeping force in Kosovo. And some GS-14 said, sure having no authorization. And a Russian aircraft landed at Pristina, which was the airport in Kosovo, to begin the process. And they were surrounded by troops of NATO and kept on the airfield. Partly as a result of this, Yeltsin fell. Yeltsin was forced out of office. Chernomirdin later died from an unknown disease, but did he, that he was, a man came forward to rectify this problem. This is how Putin came into office. Putin had to respond somehow, but there was no response he could make. He dealt with internal crises, Chechnya, and developed a way of putting down rebellions. Not a nice way, but he put it down. Putin was lost. I mean, how did we get, we Russians, we who defeated Hitler, how did we get to the point where they dare surround our airplane? How do we get to the point where the Americans are shipping weapons through the Pankhese Gorge into Georgia, into uh, southern Russia, Chechnya? Now, were we shipping them? I don't know. He believed it. Is it inconceivable that we were doing it? No. <laughs> so how could this be happening? And he took Chechnya and crushed it. But it wasn't enough. The Pankhese Gorge had two sides. One in Chechnya, one in Georgia. And in 2008, he attacked Georgia. The strategic purpose was to demonstrate that Russia could act. 
It was not any great strategic understanding beyond the fact that he was being held in contempt by the West. They did not believe the Russians could organize an offensive action, so he did. All his life, he was trying to restore respect for Russia. And all his life, the Americans were hitting him back. Hitting him back, hitting him back. The worst place happened in, 19, in 2014, in the Maiden Square. Where from his point of view, the constitutionally elected government was one Sunday morning replaced the president of Ukraine sent into exile in Russia and the Americans serving as advisors to a new government that didn't quite know where the bathroom was. So this is where he was. He was so how did this happen? How did the Americans take control of Ukraine? But his thinking went farther than this. Okay? His thinking was the following. M3 is a road that leads from the Ukrainian border to Moscow. It is 263 miles long. The Americans were now 263 miles from Moscow. When the Germans began their war, they were 1,500 miles from Moscow. When Napoleon began his war, I don't know how far it was, but it was far. <laughs> the Swedes, very few know about the Swedish invasions, sort of the war. The one thing that any Russian strategist knows is that Russia survives by strategic depth. Hitler started his attack in June. Because of the distance that he had to go, he didn't reach Moscow till the winter which is a bad time to show up in Moscow. What the Americans didn't understand is the Russian obsession with strategic depth. The idea that the existence of Russia depends on buffer zones. And the single buffer zone that was most important to a Russian strategist was Ukraine. This vast area out of which Stalingrad came. This was now in his mind in the hands of the Americans. In the minds of the Americans, we just being nice, we liberated the place. We had no ambitions. But the Russian view was you always have ambitions. You always pretend to be nice. You're not nice, you're Americans. And once you invade somebody, they have to say thank you. This is overstating the Russian point of view, but not very much. The degree to which the Russians believe Americans to be massive hypocrites, constantly doing good while benefiting themselves, is unanswerable. So extraordinarily, Putin didn't trust the Americans. He didn't trust Obama. He didn't trust anyone. And he looked at the map, and he understood that the country that he was ruling was one step away from death. If Americans send in troops to Ukraine, which we could have, 263 miles from Moscow, 
Not enough time to respond, not enough time to maneuver, not enough time to make mistakes. All Russian wars begin with massive mirrors. You have to recover from it. It wasn't possible. He looked around the map, and what had been lost? Well, the, all the buffer zones, the South Caucasus, the North European plain, the Central Asia, all gone. And so he set about with a strategy of regaining the borderlands. In the Northeast, the gentle coup where Lukashenko sort of stole the election and maybe didn't, he comes in gently supporting Lukashenko and today owns Belarus. In the South Caucasus, there's a war, partly started by the Russians, between Azerbaijan and Armenia over a place called Nagorno-Karabakh. I once went to Azerbaijan and they had a radio interv television interview. And they said, what is the American position on Nagorno-Karabakh? And I said, we have no position. Something has to be done. I said, do it. They cut off the interview. <laughs> You want to invade them, invade them, I don't care. All through Central Asia, uncertainty. Russia's fear is the North European plain. The plain that starts at Paris, swings all the way to Moscow, is flat. It is the route to invade Russia. And Belarus is an unstable place. Turkey has invaded Russia many times. It can't invade it again. Ha! The one thing the Russians know is that the thing that is impossible this year, next year becomes possible. And it's wide open. The North Caucasus are there, but they can be penetrated too. And Central Asia has God knows what going on. The Americans are fighting in Afghanistan. They have planes in this place and oil companies in that place. The Russians cannot believe we're not up to something. The idea that Americans say, hey, it's an oil company. It has nothing to do with anything. This they don't believe. They cannot grasp the fact that there's not some, some central force guiding us. The idea of a society this powerful, this wealthy, that rises out of the primordial muck without ever having an organizational principle is beyond them. So everything that they see has a meaning. Everything they look at has a purpose, and somebody designed it. And he set about to reverse it. Since 2020, he has reversed what he saw was a strategic catastrophe. First, in Belarus, a soft coup taking over the place. The tanks attacking um, Ukraine came from there. In the South Caucasus, he took control away from the Turks, who were there too, and had peace talks himself, and then sent 10,000 troops in as peacekeepers to enforce the truce he had. Now, there's not 10,000 there, I haven't counted them lately, but there are enough there to scare anybody. In Kazakhstan, there were riots out of nowhere going on in the streets. 
And he sent in peacekeepers to aid the Kazakh people in protecting the rights. Well, if we lost Texas and we lost Washington State and maybe Florida, then we could understand what we're looking at, especially if you lost Texas. So he created three buffers, but the key buffer wasn't there. Ukraine with M3, the road, straight up. And he had to have that. And he demanded one thing, which is symbolic, that Ukraine never be allowed to be in NATO. Now, Ukraine had never been in NATO. NATO never wanted Ukraine. But Putin doesn't think that way. Putin says, what will happen tomorrow? Okay, And he wanted that. And he felt that the only reason the Americans refused him was they intended it as a jumping off point. Why not give us what we need? The Americans say, because it's a sovereign country, we can't touch them. Sovereign schmavern. You stole the whole of North America from the Indians. That was OK. He didn't say that. He probably didn't know it. But, <laughs> but it was the same way he looked at it. That the Americans would say, because it's a sovereign country, and he would think of all the sovereign countries, like Serbia, which we bombed. He decided that he had no choice but to attack. Now, the war itself is interesting because it was the only war where both the Americans and the Russians agreed on what would happen. The Ukrainians would collapse. There was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs gave them 72 hours. Putin gave them five days. You know, he's generous. But Putin deployed his forces in an irrational way. And this is where the story becomes more difficult. He created three armored groups. One located just west of Voronezh, east of Voronezh. One in Belarus. That one was coming down to Kiev. The one in the east was going to uh, the eastern frontier. And one in Crimea. It looked like Heinz Guderian had been resurrected from the grave. This was a World War II structure and the typical problem of the Russian army. They've never gotten over Marshal Zhukov. If Marshal Zhukov attacked with tanks, we have to have tanks. During the Cold War, when I had some responsibility in trying to find out what the Russians were doing, it was an amazing thing. They were going to run on armor alone, leaving infantry behind. Now, here's the secret. Tanks use gasoline or petroleum. And they never figured out how to keep up the gasoline trucks with the tanks. Or better yet, how not to get the gasoline trucks blown up with the tanks. They had all sorts of solutions, such as plastic pipes running. Okay? And the problem with plastic pipes is they leaked. So he figured they would fix it. So you go back next year and watch the same exercise, same leaking pipe. The same sort of action was taken in Iraq, in, uh, sorry, Iraq, <laughs> in Ukraine, which is first he had three armored groups uncoordinated with infantry, almost impossible to manage 
uh, 200 miles apart, with three different loads of logistics required to run the tanks. And so he's attacking on three fronts in a country he thought would collapse. The result was, if you remember, the 40-kilometer line of tanks lined up. This was done, I believe, with two Javelin missiles knocking out the first two tanks, two Javelin missiles knocking out the last two tanks, and God took care of the mud on the right. One train was blocked. An other was not going very far. They were engaging along the frontier. And a final force that was supposed to go to Kiev couldn't get close to it. The psychological effect on the Ukrainians was enormous. What they also thought they would lose, they had thought that the Russians had a magnificent military force and knew how to operate. None of them, you know, except for your grandfathers there, had ever fought in the Russian army and knew better. The transformation that took place in Ukraine on realizing that the Russians really were unable to mount an effective offensive transformed the war. Suddenly the Ukrainians saw there was a purpose to fight. And the Russians had no real solution because they had not bought infantry. They wanted an armored war. They didn't bring in infantry until later. And the infantry said basically, where am I? Why am I here? The infantry was completely unprepared and then threw them into house-to-house -house fighting. Now, house-to-house -house fighting is ugly. But when you're attacking somebody's house who lives in it, and he knows where the bathroom is, I mean, this is really putting it at a disadvantage. Every possible way to ambush you, every possible rooftop that you could be taken from, was knocking out massive casualties, numbers we couldn't believe at the time, but were true, were knocking out the Russians. In other words, the Russians had not planned the war except on the assumption that the fact of an attack would paralyze the Ukrainians. Well, it did. Until they sat there and watched the Javelin missiles knocking out tanks, and they realized that their rifles could kill Russians too. And then the war changed. Up to that point, the Americans had given precious little equipment to the Ukrainians. We didn't want to give it to the Russians. Until then, the Ukrainians were fighting a guerrilla war without central command, which seems foolish except without a central command, there was no Schwerpunkt, which I could do in German, Schwerpunkt to hit. There was no center of gravity of the enemy, no command structure that you could find. And the Russians milled around incoherently. They decided to do what the Russian army has always done when not clear of what to do. They started killing people randomly. They started attacking cities. Now, cities are not places to fight wars. They're places to show after you win. But they went into the cities. And when they couldn't take the cities, then the air power, which had never been coordinated with the tanks before, 
now coordinated with the infantry, bombing cities. The problem with bombing cities is you didn't kill soldiers. You killed civilians. Bombing the cities created a sense of terror, but also a sense of rage. And the attack that was taken was by the new commander who fought in Syria and had been done very well in Syria. And nobody told Putin it's not Syria. You have a completely different structure that you had to face. So the Russians conducted an attack, fighting for a month for one lousy town, Mariupol, making it a martyr and spending how many troops at how much time. Because the Russians understood they only had so much time. They only had so much time, their own people who tolerate this, but far more, they did not know what the Americans were going to do. And you have to understand how afraid the Russians are of Americans. Okay? When will the Americans come in? When will they come in? They, we didn't. There was no reason to come in. You want to fight like this for a month for Maripol? We'll give you another city. Which do you like next? Urban warfare does not win wars. Not this kind of war. Okay? So they decided to fight for the Donbass region, which they already controlled because it's predominantly Russian, and they'd always controlled the area, so they're going to have a new fight for it. Okay? They were going to give up the attempt to take Kiev, which was a very good idea because the tanks were still on the road somewhere, okay? and they were going to fight for the, for the south. They were going to try, take the south and try to join to Odessa. Theoretically, not a bad idea. But the problem here was that at this point, the Ukrainians had gotten the measure of, of the war, and the Americans changed their minds. And this was the key. Up until this weekend, the American view was, however long this takes, the Russians are going to kick their butts. But in the week prior to that, during conversations, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs says, I may have been wrong. Yeah, it's OK. <laughs> Now what do you say? Ukrainians can hold. What do the Ukrainians need to be able to hold? And if you saw the list of weapons, we have suddenly armed the modern army. Ukraine, in the next month, will cease to be a bunch of guys with rifles and guts, but become the US Army. Repeat with every complex weapon. Now. Truth be told, the Poles have been training a lot of the Ukrainians in how to do these things. Poland is a kind of base for Ukraine and for the United States. We will deliver the weapons there, and the Ukrainians will suddenly, miraculously know how to use them. <laughs> After this war, there's a Polish story. You know, you know Polish jokes? This is a good one. <laughs> so after this, all right? The Russians have a huge problem. The Americans have come. And they've come the way the Americans always come to a party, bearing big gifts. Okay? And the Americans are in, they don't want to lose. They do lose, but they don't want to. But they're coming in with enough power and no American troops. Only Ukrainian troops 
and US Special Forces, the British Special Forces, and you know, a few guys in Poland, and, you know, nothing serious. We're coming in now, you're Putin. You're seeing all of this go away. Everything you dreamt of, recreating a secure Russia. Okay? So he has two choices. Hit him now hard with everything he has, which suffers from the question of how much does he have? Does he really have anything? Or is he flitted away in foolish activities? Or try to make a deal. If there was ever a moment for the Russians to make a deal, it's now, but the Russians can never make a moment deal when they're weak. The Russians must be strong. So one way to do it is announce, have this, I have never seen an amazing army like the Russians. They are so strong. Let's talk. <laughs> this is one sort of way we could do it, but we won't. Okay? Because now we can win. For the first time, the United States believes the Ukrainians can win. The Ukrainians no longer simply think they can hold. They think they can win. And the Poles always thought they could win. And if they didn't, sorry guys. <laughs> so what we have here now is Putin's worst nightmare. And that's when the Russians are dangerous, when they confront their mortality. It's very interesting that we've suddenly had a spate of articles out of the Western press about his Parkinson's disease. I'm sure this is not planned by anybody, but if it were, it would certainly tell his followers, you know, the man is dying, you know, maybe you want to give him a rest. <laughs> and so we are down at this point where the Russians need to make a move. Now, understand how important this is to Russia. Understand that the frivolous coverage about Russia having no reason to do this but sheer meanness is not true. That the Russian reason for doing it make absolute sense and then we can kill them. You gotta love them to kill them. That was the point. How do we kill them? Doing exactly what Biden did to my stunning surprise. Uh, he provided them with the, he provided the Ukrainians with top-of-the-line capabilities. Radar systems, the ability to knock out aircraft at high altitudes, uh, more aircraft, unmanned aerial vehicles, a range of weapons that we would go to fight with. They say it'll take a month to transfer and integrate. Who knows? But if you're the Russians, now you have to do something. And Moscow has been stunningly silent. Now those of us who study Russia know that silence is not a good sign. <laughs> but they are, they are very quiet. They have not said anything. And we are coming down to this point. If we hold Ukraine, Russia will, I think, go through its second collapse. The first collapse of Russia solved nothing. This first collapse of the Soviet Union didn't solve the institutional problems, didn't solve the economic problems, didn't solve any of the problems. Putin was the man who was going to not be Yeltsin, which was an important thing, but also was going to 
create a new, modern, powerful Russia. Defeat, it fails. What is the next upheaval? But having paid a tremendous price over the years, to be defeated once again, well, this is going to be very hard for any Russian to take. And as in 1917, Russians, when they face defeat, overthrow the Tsar. So this is approaching a very dangerous point. The other option the Russians have is to hit the Ukrainians, hit them hard, and bomb Poland, bomb those bases. They've got to stop those weapons from coming in and being distributed. Once they're in, they're going to be doing them wholesale. Okay, we're shooting one, two, three, four. Right now, the plane lands at the airport, hit one, all shipments will be stopped. The Americans probably won't do anything. The term probably is a very tough, troubling term to the Russians and to everyone. And so we are here at the cusp of the war. The war has reached a critical point at which fundamental Russian interests are at stake and fundamental American interests. We have a fundamental interest of ha having any one power conquer Europe. We exist because there is no power that can invade us by land. We can only be invaded from the sea. And therefore, the control of the sea is critical. And you control the sea by making sure no one else can build fleets, hence the Cold War. And by making sure that he doesn't take Europe, he takes that option away. And we can sit here nice and happy and enjoy ourselves. And Putin knows all of these things, and now he's desperate. I've never seen Putin desperate. He's trained not to be desperate. But we will see. As for the United States, a proxy war that we can fight is something we haven't had in a good time, in a good long time. It's been a while since we've had one. Maybe even win? Well, maybe not. We'll see. But we are now at the point where two great powers confront each other, each having absolutely legitimate rights, legitimate claims. And it doesn't make any difference, because power is what determines the outcome. Being right in foreign policy makes no difference, because your being right is someone else being wrong. And someone else's being wrong can mean everything to them. So understand Putin understand what he's going through, understand that what he hoped would be the, the, the extraordinary achievement of Russian ruler, better than Peter the Great, flowing through his hands. And his hated enemy, who he told to hate in the KGB, doing the job on him. And remember, Americans, that you live in a nasty world and that goodwill is not a commodity that carries much weight. Power matters. And this is as clear a story of this war as I can give. Let me stop here. China is hunting humans abroad.
I've been personally in contact with more than 20 people who have shared their stories anonymously. And what struck me was the sheer perseverance and dedication to stopping any and all speech against the Chinese government, no matter where these people are in the entire world. I base this video on their stories as well as criminal reports that are documented online. To protect their identities, I only use certain details and excerpts from their tales. In 2014, Xi Jinping, the dictator of China, mobilized the biggest security apparatus in the world, Operation Fox Hunt, Liahu Xingdong. It was time to use his massive anti-corruption drive to actually hunt down political opponents, dissidents, and people that fell out of favor with his clique within the Chinese government. Go to all the ends of the earth to catch these people. No one would be safe. China describes Fox Hunt as some kind of international anti-corruption campaign. It is not. Instead, Fox Hunt is a sweeping bid by General Secretary Xi to target Chinese nationals whom he sees as threats and who live outside of China, across the world. We're talking about political rivals, dissidents, and critics seeking to expose China's extensive human rights violations. You see, they're not just going after financial criminals, but they're also going after dissidents, pro-democracy people, people that just don't like the Chinese government. They go after family. Conduit businesses spring up in the U.S. and operate to help find these people on U.S. soil. They set up fake organizations, sometimes even Chinese pro-democracy clubs, to get all the information of dissidents to send back to China in order to create new victims of the fox hunt and to get people to stop speaking out against the Chinese government. The guise is anti-corruption. The anti-corruption crackdown where Xi Jinping purged more than one million members of the Chinese Communist Party. But it wasn't just about that. In fact, it was about seizing all political power within China. And unfortunately, that also means reaching outside of China's borders. Every single person with money or power in China has been involved in corruption in some way, shape, or form. So that makes a lot of easy targets. It's pretty genius, actually. There is this idea that China could start finding these people, these financial criminals, abroad, hunting outside of China's borders. We could kind of see one of the first tests of this apparatus when Xi Jinping visited in 2015. FBI agents in the U.S. still found themselves skirmishing with Chinese spies deployed to intimidate dissidents in American cities during the presidential visit. I kid you not, in the U.S., the FBI was fighting off Chinese spies trying to intimidate people in the U.S. who were against the Chinese government. They are intertwined in society and coerce Chinese Americans to help too, even when they're unwilling. They may pay a person in a Chinese community $1,800 to surveil someone for five days. Small forms of harassment can be seen in Chinese neighborhoods in the USA or the UK or Australia, where Chinese police car replicas are used to harass the local Chinese population. Bigger cases include entire teams who are experts in getting people to repatriate back to China. They slip in and out of American airports with ease. 
they use international borders, and they cross them easily. Before governments really understood it, the databases at customs, you know, when people get off the plane and try to enter a country, they really didn't have the information to tell them what to look for. They hire networks of drivers here on American soil. They go to residential houses and they give the victim an option. These networks are especially useful when the Chinese agents have run out of options because the first option is usually harassing the person over video call or email or finding ways to disrupt their life. But when that doesn't work out, they have to resort to actually being here in the U.S. Sometimes they'll get notes left on their window, or two RMB left in their mailbox, or in some cases, they will even get an agent to fly a grandparent, especially frail and sick ones, over to the U.S. and drop them on the doorstep of the victim to say, "Come home to China now, or else." We've got your family. You see, the family angle is one of the most disturbing angles, but is one that is often used. Hundreds of fox hunt victims that they target live right here in the United States, and many are American citizens or green card holders. The Chinese government wants to force them to return to China, and China's tactics to accomplish that are shocking. For example, when it couldn't locate one fox hunt target, the Chinese government sent an emissary to visit the target's family here in the United States. The message that they said to pass on: the target had two options: return to China promptly or commit suicide. There's a pattern to these hunts: create networks, swoop into the country at key moments, insulated by layers of forced recruits, hired civilians. Private detectives and even street criminals. The pursuit can last for years, sometimes even after U.S. law enforcement intervenes. You want to know how brazen the Xi Jinping regime is? China isn't playing nice anymore, hiding in the background and biding its time to rule the world. That's the old China playbook. When Chinese officials originally came to the U.S. to kind of discuss what fox hunt was going to be about, maybe to cooperate with the U.S. in catching actual criminals. The Chinese officials came with large delegations that snuck in Chinese police officers. That in between the meetings with U.S. officials would go off and harass victims on U.S. soil to try to coerce to come back to China. These diplomats, these people that came to fly over from China to discuss the very thing that they're going to do, ended up doing it in between meetings. China publishes and parades the victims' addresses and pictures in Chinese state media to get people in China to harass them and to scare potential dissidents or criminals. In fact, CGTN, which is China's state mouthpiece in English, was banned in the UK for airing forced confessions of criminals in order to scare people away into not speaking against the state. But it gets even more insane. Here's what they did to one victim: China will get authorities in other countries like Mexico. To detain you and deport you back to China instead of the USA, they'll tell victims that they're going on a plane to Texas or wherever, but they're actually going to Shanghai. While the U.S. doesn't capitulate in this kind of behavior, other countries like Mexico do. The main goal is to instill fear into Chinese people abroad. You're never safe. However, under Xi Jinping's regime, it's not only Chinese people; it's anyone 
who is speaking out against the Chinese government and its human rights atrocities. There's this thing where people think it's just a Chinese on Chinese thing, so fewer people will care, but that's not the case. The CSIS, or the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, also publicly acknowledged that China is using threats and intimidation against members of Canada's Chinese community that are akin to the tactics used in Operation Fox Hunt. Canada's intelligence service said that these tactics can also be used as cover for silencing dissent, pressuring political opponents, and instilling a general fear of state power, no matter where a person is located. In fact, some of the people that reached out to me when I was doing research for this video told me that China has employed a network of non-ethnically Chinese people, ironically, mostly Canadians, that are currently operating in and outside of China. The Chinese government uses them as fodder to carry out tasks that it deems too unclean, and there's no incentive to protecting their foreign assets after they complete their task, as they've shown to divorce themselves from the asset as soon as they're deemed useless, or have completed their tasks. Many people who have been co-opted by China have come to regret it, as their home governments are monitoring this type of behavior very closely these days, as seen in many cases post-2014. One such case was the arson of a Xi Jinping virus statue in California, made by a Chinese dissident. An American was co-opted by Chinese agents to do everything in his power to get the statue removed, and now could potentially be tied to something much bigger. They hire private investigators and they try to manipulate people around them, break the law in multiple ways to complete their task. And in the end, they're caught. And China divorces themselves from the asset. Police officers and just plain old citizens have been caught working with the Chinese government and Western countries are finally starting to pay close attention. Xi Jinping has brought a sense of urgency to the process. There is a boldness, a brazenness in a way that they're treating us. They don't think that there will be a consequence. But all is not lost. There is a law for this. It's called transnational repression, and it's for everyone on American soil. I can't speak for other countries, but if you or someone you know is in the US, you can reach out to authorities to stop this heinous harassment in its tracks. It's not only China, in fact. Any country that represses people can be guilty of this. In fact, many countries around the world have been found to be working hand in hand with China you see, the Chinese government is operating concentration camps in Western China and committing genocide against the Uyghurs, which is an ethnic group in Western China. When people escape these camps and go to other countries to tell their story, China does everything that they can to get them back. So Arslan, how is China hunting Uyghurs in other countries? Well, you would have seen recently, China has had a big influence in the Middle East, in places like um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Turkey. And how this generally works is there are huge economic gains to be made. And so we want to look at the process of how China tries to extradite the Uyghurs back into uh, their hands. And how they do this is uh, once they have the deal with the country, what they do is those countries then uh, without the person's knowledge either cancel uh, the individual's residence permit. Uyghurs are technically Chinese citizens. So when they go to renew their passports at the Chinese consulate or embassy, they'll say you need to head back to Beijing or you need to go back to Urumqi and you need, and you need to renew it there. 
And you know, today going back into uh, China or going back to East Turkestan, you know, that would be the that would be the equivalent of a Jew going back into Nazi Germany to renew to renew their papers. The cases that I know, especially having lived in Turkey for eight years, what seems to happen is these Uyghurs are sent to these deportation centers, then they are visited by the, the Tajik government. They are given false papers. They are given a Tajik passport, a country that they've never been to. Then they are extradited to Tajikistan and then they are sold to China or they're extradited to other Central Asian countries. In the thousands, if not tens of thousands of people since 2017 have been uh, deported back into China's hands. What is the motivation? Why would China be hunting down Uyghurs abroad to send them back to, to China? Well, if you've got thousands of people saying and that they are pure evidence of, you know, the victims of concentration camp detainees. I mean, these people, um, are not necessarily activists. They have links, either their mother, their father, their, their brother, their sister, or half of their family are in the camps. And um, them being on the outside is physical evidence that there is a genocide going on, that there are concentration camps going on. I mean, to this day, to this day, for God's sake, in 2022, they are still trying to hide that there is no genocide, that there are no concentration camps. They won't up, open up their borders. Um, the very next thing to have people on the ground, which you, which you cannot have, is to have these witnesses mm -hmm. um, uh, to these atrocities. Now, it's easy to feel hopeless. Like China has a stranglehold on all this, that there's no escaping China, and that they will do anything to stop any and all dissent or criticism of the CCP and its human rights abuses. But that is exactly what they want you to feel. Western countries like the US, Canada, and the UK, and more are waking up albeit much too late, but they're offering avenues, outlets, and real recourse for what is happening, and they are taking it very seriously. Overreach like Fox Hunt is meant to cause fear and panic and silence in the public, but now it's having the opposite effect. Billions of dollars in capital outflow from China, governments and companies around the world divorcing themselves from China, and people shining a massive beacon on what China is doing abroad.